Welcome to Paths Less Trodden Interviews with me, Daniel Ross. This is a series of interviews about Paths Less Trodden, discussions with free and contrarian thinkers who have fulfilled their ambitions where others have feared to tread. I'm interviewing entrepreneurs, investors, writers, creators, adventurers and anyone who's carving out the future a little differently. Paths Less Trodden is brought to you by Tsepo, one of South Africa's most exciting and sought-after fashion brands. Seppo Molala's story, values and life philosophy are a perfect match for everything that I'm striving to show in this podcast series. From the most humble beginnings, Seppo, meaning hope, the self-taught stylist and designer, has built his business from the ground up and is recognised as one of South Africa's hippest denim brands. He is a born fighter and entrepreneur of the best kind. Follow his rise to international stardom on Twitter and Instagram at Seppo Jeans in both cases that's spelled T-S-H-E-P-O. Follow the celebrities and tastemakers who love him by checking out the presidential slim fit jeans at seppo.shop. I'm delighted to say that today my guest is Rory Sutherland. Rory is vice chairman of Ogilvy UK and is an expert on consumer behaviour, trends and the influence of the internet. He analyzes what branding means, what creativity is, and the value of persuasion over compulsion. He is a speaker around the world from TED to his own behavioral science festival, Nudgestock. He is also an accomplished author. He published Alchemy, The Magic of Original Thinking in a World of Mind-Numbing Conformity in 2018, and he writes regularly for The Spectator magazine. Rory is one of the most respected creative thinkers in the ad industry. He once suggested to Microsoft that they enable people to share office documents on the internet. Hmm. The idea was dismissed, but Rory has nevertheless gone on to build a career out of the counterintuitive and the original. With a razor-sharp wit and intellect, he examines what influences our choices and why irrational thinking tends to win out. This podcast is in two parts. In part one here, we discuss the wonder of Red Bull whether our human biases are too deeply embedded for humans to change their decision-making, why the advertising industry is insufficiently creative, why traditional economic theory still holds sway, and we conclude by dangling the question whether Rory himself is as susceptible as the next person to decision-making biases. Beyond part two, there will also be a short bonus edition for subscribers in which Rory shares his story of an unusual and unexpected 24 hours in a Qatari jail. Be sure to subscribe on Apple or Spotify to Paths Less Trodden to get these upcoming episodes. You can also find them and all my other writing at danielsjross.substack.com where I encourage you to sign up too. I really hope you enjoy. Now let's get on with the show. Rory, welcome to Paths Less Trodden. It's great to have you along today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been pleasure. a few years since we last met, so what a, it, it, what a joy. It, it, Indeed it has. Now, to set the scene, you published your first book, Alchemy, in 2018, whose subject is summarized neatly by its byline, The Magic of Original Thinking in a World of Mind-Numbing Conformity. And there you go to the heart of behavioral science, which is to unravel the two core tenets of classical economic theory, that humans make rational, evidence-based decisions, and that markets sit in perfect equilibrium. The key point that you're making in the book is that a little less logical thinking creates alchemical, brilliant solutions. Now, I consumed your book via audio, 
mainly during my twice daily dog walk. And in the spirit of the book, and thinking more in terms of psychologic rather than pure logic, as you would put it, it occurred to me that admitting to you that I'd gone for the audio version was a negative signal that somehow, despite its convenience and identical content and value, you might interpret this psychologically as intellectually inferior. You might even call it a reverse IKEA effect. Am I talking BS behavioral science here, or am I talking BS bullshit? I wouldn't have interpreted that at all, in fact. I mean, there are issues for authors in terms of the audiobook in that it's a field entirely dominated by Amazon. And therefore, uh, you know, there are questions raised about where the money goes. But I don't, I don't hold you responsible for that because no customer of a book is uh, expected to know. And actually, strangely, I genuinely don't know and would love more research on the different mental effects of reading something and listening to it. Now, actually, listening to it is slower. So you've actually spent more time with my book than if you were to read it cover to cover. Uh, the fact that you listened it, uh, to it to the end. I'm glad you actually listened to it on a series of dog walks because it was written partly through necessity because having spent my whole life both as a bit of a journalist and as an advertising copywriter, I'm pretty good at writing 500, 1,000, 2,000 words, but my ability to structure things collapses completely beyond that length. So my wife, in fact, said, well, why don't you just make it a series of short chapters? And none of the readers seem to mind at all. There's this assumption that a book should be, you know, 10 very long chapters, that the uh, logical arc should be absolutely rigorous. To be honest, I think that's a publisher's obsession, not a reader's obsession. I also think, by the way, the reason books are so goddamn long reflects a publisher obsession, that actually there are too few short books. The problem is, is you can't charge $17.99 for an 80-page book. And so Correct. publishers want books to be of a certain length, really to satisfy the financial needs of publishing. It's nothing to do with the reader interest. But but actually, I'm intrigued by this because I, I think that um, in many ways, speech, of course, is much, much more natural than text. I mean, human reading, it's mentioned in Homer, what, two and a half thousand years ago. There's one mention of writing in Homer where someone sends someone a so stones containing strange signs, which is the only recorded mention in Homer of writing. You have to teach kids to read. You don't have to teach them to speak. Okay, Kids learn to speak naturally. They have to be taught to read. And it really interests me in the sense that I'm asking this question about Zoom. Is it actually better for business and the quality of decision making, the fact that people are actually having spoken discussions face to face, albeit virtually, rather than sending each other asynchronous emails? And I think it's perfectly plausible that the nuance we can capture in a conversation is vastly better than the nuance we might capture in, a, in an email. And so I'm slightly optimistic about a shift back to spoken engagement over... Now, I know it's fashionable because, you know, as a signal of educatedness, literacy and being literate and reading books is a very strong signal of intellectuality. But, I mean, you know, Plato wrote his works as a series of conversations. There's something about human conversation which I think... And I, I enjoyed recording the audiobook myself because I was able to get... Actually, it's not identical to the printed version. I go off on digressions. I bake footnotes into the main text and so on. But I enjoyed reading the audiobook enormously because I felt you could get across through tonality and phrasing nuances and subtleties which are difficult to capture in text. 
Well, I, I enjoyed it enormously, and it brings something of the quality of, of radio. It felt more personal. It felt very conversational. But picking up on your Zoom comment, it's fair to say that the last 18 months have seen the most extraordinary and accelerated behavioral change in memory, or at least in my memory. What do you think we've learned about ourselves, good and bad? What new behaviors do you think will become habits and which will fade? It's a brilliant question. And by the way, it's not a question you can answer with complete generalities in the sense that different business categories will be affected very, very differently. I mean, I think that, and Daniel Kahneman says this, so it's not just me, I think that a certain group of people, perhaps they were naturally introverts and slightly, slightly, shall we say, claustrophobic anyway, I think will retain, even after the whole virus may either disappear or or, or become largely irrelevant in medical terms, will retain a slight hesitancy around crowded spaces and overcrowding and so forth. Not everybody will. I'm sure that young people will behave in different ways to old in aggregate, and that a lot of this depends on temperament. It also depends which business category you're in. I mean, John Quelch very helpfully divides products into essentials, treats, postponables, and optionals. It's interesting that he doesn't refer to treats as optionals, but a cruise holiday might be something that's almost indefinitely postponable. You know, a car purchase is postponable, but only up to a point, assuming you need a car for your day to day life. You can postpone the replacement of your car, but you you can't necessarily postpone it indefinitely. Then there are things that are essential um, foodstuffs. And then there are things which are treats which, um, you know, everything from sort of takeaway meals to uh, anything else, you know, a large part of fashion or or the wine industry is really driven by either treats or signalling the significance of an occasion through expenditure. And all of those things, I, I think, will be affected in different ways. Obviously, there are some categories like home delivery where it will probably remain sticky for two reasons. One, just force of habit. We knew before the pandemic, if you could get people to order from a cardo three times, they generally went on to become lifetime customers to some degree. Whereas if you didn't get them to, you know, obviously by definition, if you couldn't get them to, do, to adopt the behavior thrice, you hadn't really ingrained it into, into their repertoire. It wasn't part of their ha- habit or repertoire. Obviously, there are knock-on effects because people are probably, in some numbers, are going to be home more often than they were. And so home delivery is actually less of an inconvenience or less of a logistical nightmare than it might have been. But I, I think it is interesting. But the most interesting thing is in business behavior, which is the extent to which I think, shamefully, I think it's an extraordinary reflection on the lack of experimentation in business, that people weren't experimenting with greater use of video calling and video conferencing without waiting for a pandemic to force their hand. And so what we know from behaviour is there's a famous experiment involving the London Underground, where three tube lines went on strike, and a bunch of people from several universities analysed the Oyster card data before, during and after. And they found that the strike on, I think it was the the circle line, the northern line and one other line, it obviously and unsurprisingly drove new behaviours during the duration of the strike because a large number of people had to find a new way into work. What was interesting was there was a significant degree of stickiness where a large proportion of people continued either permanently or occasionally using the new route they'd discovered through necessity. They then started using through choice. 
And it does have an interesting bearing on human behavior at the philosophical level, which is, are there behaviors which government, desirable behaviors, social behaviors, which government could create simply through temporary uh, intervention? Because there are certain things which, and so I found it fascinating. Now, one of the interesting things, of course, with, with video conferencing is it's a network product. And network products, Douglas McWilliams, who is formerly the chief economist of IBM and now runs the uh, Center for Economic and Business Research, he made this point early on that network products are unusual in that they require critical mass to deliver their benefits and their economies of scale. He noticed that there's obviously, as a simple thought experiment, there's no point in owning the world's only fax machine. The fax was actually a 19th century technology which became big partly in the UK because there was a series of postal strikes in the 1980s. And then once you could reasonably assume that every hotel had a fax, every business you you dealt with had a fax, and that by sending them a fax you weren't being weird, okay, and that you knew that the fax was part of their normal repertoire of communication so it wasn't going to sit on a you know, sit on a fax machine for four days before anybody picked it up. Suddenly the fax machine, albeit briefly, started delivering its real benefits. And that's interesting because I think more and more behaviours are network behaviours, where if you wait for them to reach critical mass simply through individual preference, you'll have a very long wait. Interestingly, the Department for Transport predicted that demand for transport would fall because of video conferencing, but all their predictions had that happening in about 2030. And so, you know, uh, what happened is this massively accelerated a process which probably would have happened anyway. It would have just taken 10 to 15 years longer or maybe required some other major event. I actually said to the marketing director of Zoom in 2019, much to my horror in retrospect, I said, of course, what you guys really need is a major transport strike or a minor pandemic because something that will jolt people into widespread critical mass adoption of this technology will then basically prove sticky. And I I think an enormous amount of business behavior was driven by norms and performative costly signaling. You know, we must fly to Frankfurt to meet Jürgen because if we don't and our competitors do, we'll look lazy. If you think about it, if you suggested flying to Frankfurt and it went wrong, everybody blamed British Airways because they said, oh, the flight was cancelled. They blamed French air traffic control. By choosing to do a video conference, if anything went wrong, technologically, they blame you. Now, I have a theory about B2B behavioral economics, which is whereas consumer behavior is mostly driven by the minimization of the risk of regret, business decision making is mostly driven by the minimization of the risk of blame. And so there's a very, very strong bias and force within business decision making, which is do what I've done before and do what everybody else does, because the likelihood of blame in making what is essentially a non behavior is much, much lower than if you go with the flow of preset defaults. It's what we call in behavioral, we we call this the Heathrow JFK effect. If you ask for a flight to New York, your company travel agent or your company PA will always come back with a load of flights from Heathrow to JFK. The Ogilvy office, as it happened, was much, much closer to Newark. But what they realized is if if you put someone on a flight from Heathrow to JFK, if anything goes wrong, they blame British Airways. If you do something eccentric and you book them out of London City or Gatwick or Newark, if anything goes wrong, they blame you because they'll say, if you hadn't booked me from the sodding Toy Town Airport, I'd be home by now. And so there's this extraordinary force in B2B decision making, which essentially is go with the boring option, because then if anything goes wrong, the blame will fall somewhere else. 
you talk in the book about the need to be a little silly, to ask the dumb questions, thinking about business decision-making, to seek the counterintuitive path. To quote you, uh, a little bit of bullshit in a world you can't predict or fully understand is highly permissible. I wanted to turn to your industry, advertising, actually, to pick up on this theme of business decision-making, advertising. Because despite its emphasis on creativity, it seems to me it's too safe, too scientific, too rigid, too bullshit-free, too risk-averse to turn out more than occasionally great campaigns. Am I, am I right or yes, am I, I, I misguided? I no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the reason is that the belief that uh, advertising should be accountable, I think is fundamentally unrealistic to begin with. So that the value of fame is, it's kind of fat-tailed, to be honest. I mean, as Nassim Taleb would say. Okay, marketing is actually fat-tailed. A large part of the reason you do it, I would argue, is to max is that by dint of fame and reputation, you are exposed to opportunities in the future which would not otherwise present themselves. Now, the idea that you can necessarily predict what those opportunities are in advance or actually attribute their value to a specific piece of activity in retrospect strikes me as fundamentally unrealistic. At the macro level, what's happened is because of the false gods of accountability, which have been sold to us by a combination of media agencies and tech firms, the idea that advertising should, rather than being an effectiveness and opportunity maximization engine, should be an efficiency optimization engine, which obviously accords much better with business thinking, which tends to default to an efficiency and cost reduction mindset, wherever it finds an opportunity to do so. And I think that's a very dangerous default behavior in business. I'll give you a very simple example, okay? The value, let's take a B2B company, one of our clients, Rolls-Royce. The value of their brand means that better people come to work for them, people come to them with ideas, people will work for them for a bit less money because it's a more prestigious employer. When the chief executive calls someone up, well, other than the president of the United States and a few world leaders, nearly everybody else is going to return the call. What's that worth? Well, it's worth a huge amount of money. It's almost impossible to say how much it's actually worth. And so this problem, which to quote Keynes, where we'd rather be precisely wrong than vaguely right, I think has come to bedevil the advertising industry, where our obsession with measurement down to the penny means that we're chasing incremental improvements when we should be chasing actually uh, unknown opportunities. I find it very, very interesting because it probably explains why innovation so rarely comes from large organizations as distinct from startups. You know, there are exceptions, the IBM PC division, Nespresso. But why didn't Red Bull come from Coca-Cola? Well, one of the reasons I would argue is that the premise of Red Bull was simply too nonsensical to sell to a multiple decision-making unit in a large organisation. Let me pick you up on Red Bull briefly, because you talk about Red Bull in the book, the ultimate irrational purchase, yeah, arguably, yeah. overpriced. Pro probably, I'd probably say that if you, if you take the idea that everything's a mixture of what you might call emotional and rational benefits, okay? And so there's a great phrase, which is, you know, I, I think Ludwig von Mises says, there's no useful distinction to be made in a restaurant between the value created by the man who, who cooks the food and the value created by the man who sweeps the floor. One person produced that manufacturing produces the goods the other one creates the mental environment in which you can appreciate those goods to the full in other words a clean restaurant with attractive furniture etc etc 
Sometimes that's done ingeniously in the case of Five Guys, where the actual surroundings aren't that exotic compared to a McDonald's, but they've somehow created something where you can charge £10 for a burger in what is, after all, basically a QSR fast food environment. Now, there are extremes of those things, okay? So I would say that the pet rock was probably the most extreme case of nearly all the value being created by marketing because the base product was, after all, a piece of stone, which wasn't exactly in scarce supply. And the other extreme might be something like salt in the late Middle Ages, which was a chemical formula where you simply wanted that stuff, you needed it, and you simply bought it. Now, even salt now, of course, you pay a huge premium for Malden sea salt or North Welsh sea salt. But nonetheless, there are products which are more to the one extreme or more to the other. What's interesting is that economics understands salt in the late Middle Ages to some extent. It doesn't really understand modern emotional consumer capitalism at all, I would argue, because so many products have multiple meanings and, you know, and and mixed utilities, you know. Let's just round off the Red Bull example, because some listeners may not be familiar with what we're nudging at. Because what I was going to say, of course, Red Bull is arguably, it's overpriced, it's foul tasting, and it's in an odd shaped can. Yet, I wonder, was that deliberate design? Or was it luck followed by plenty of post-rationalization? Well, I think like many innovative things, it started in a niche area, which seems to have been Thai lorry drivers who wanted an energy drink to keep them alert and awake. What was undoubtedly lucky is that they sold it, all of those qualities, high price, weird, small can. Strangely enough, in Thailand, it was a stumpier can. It wasn't the kind of battery shape we have, which also probably signals energy in some way, in the fact that the can is similar in shape to a battery. That probably works at some unconscious level, although I have no evidence to prove that. All those things are massive negatives if you're looking at the thing conventionally as a drink. Weird taste. If you position the thing as a drug, as having psychoactive or pharmacologically active effects, actually, our psychologic works completely differently. We expect a drug to taste a bit strange. In fact, our belief in the drug's efficacy is probably triggered by the weirdness of the taste. The high price says that it's potent. We know that analgesics are more effective if you tell people they're expensive, by the way. Wine tastes better if you tell people it's expensive. And then, of course, the small can almost suggests a measured dose. We can't give you a full, you know, 375 milliliters or you go do lally because this is so potent. You have to consume it in a measured dose. In the same way, I think the same psychology works for those one a day yogurts, the bioactive yogurts, where you peel off something a bit like a milk churn, and you have your shot of slightly weird tasting substance. Now, in the one case, it's gut health. In the other case, it's kind of mental oomph. It was undoubtedly helped, by the way. It was also banned for sale for under 16s, which oddly, which you'd think of as a a conventional soft drinks manufacturer, you'd think of that as a catastrophe. It was probably a fantastically valuable piece of promotion. And of course, Americans learned to mix it with vodka as well, which didn't hurt. So what's so interesting about that is that whether the thing is good or bad is a product far more of how it's framed or positioned than of what it is intrinsically. And so the fact that you can create value by simply telling a different story about something seems to me immensely important. It's, it comes under the field, if you want to be academic about it, it comes under the field of phenomenology, really. But the fact that actually brands and products are phenomenological entities, they're not simply deliverers of utility, that actually we buy them for what they mean as much as for what they do, is hugely important. Because, of course, it also raises the opposite problem, which is, are there brilliant ideas out there which already exist in technological form, simply, however, 
no one has actually worked out the way to tell a story about them or to frame them or position them in a way that makes them emotionally appealing. I'll give you a lovely example of this, which is that in the field of British sparkling wine, we always felt, didn't we, that it was a second best to champagne. Now, over time, the growers got much, much better at it. The soil is actually incredibly similar in Southeast England to that in Epernay. And I would argue that the best of the, you know, whether it's Chapel Down or Squerries or whatever, the best of them are now better than certainly better than rudimentary French champagne. We can have a debate about Bollinger Vintage or Paul Roger. Now, interestingly, this is a classic case of psychologic. There was an ex-Heineken marketing guy who I think bought Chapel Down. And he did ramp up the quality a bit. But the most important thing he did is he ramped up the price. Because it didn't matter how good British sparkling wine was. If it cost nine fifty, it wasn't as good as champagne. And the reason was that champagne is mostly purchased to signal generosity or significance. In other words, it's not mostly bought for your own consumption. It's actually bought to serve to other people or to give to other people as a present. And it doesn't matter how good the contents are. If the emotional reaction of the recipient is you bought this because it was nine ninety five, you didn't buy it because it was good. And probably it never tasted as good because we'd only paid nine ninety five for it, by the way. English sparkling wine remained as an also ran, I would argue, and would always have done so, however good the quality of the contents of the bottle might have been. Now, there's an interesting fact, by the way, which is champagne was invented in Britain anyway. Uh, so there's a guy called Christopher Merritt who presented to the Royal Society about in-bottle fermentation long before Dom Perignon claimed to have invented the drink himself. And actually, it, it really arose not because of improvements in winemaking. It arose because of Geordie improvements in bottle making, which meant you could produce bottles that would cope with in-bottle fermentation without exploding. So it's actually a Geordie drink. It's not a French drink at all. But n- never mind that. We, I mean, that's a useful story to tell because it also adds a bit of authenticity to British sparkling wine. But if this is true, that actually there are great products out there or great ideas which are failing, not because they failed technologically, but because no one has performed this equivalent amount of experimentation and stochastic tinkering in the marketing space. Now, Jobs, Edison, Musk, they're actually showmen. Okay, I mean, they wouldn't like to be described as such. They'd obviously prefer to be considered as inventors. But there's a heavy dose of P.T. Barnum to all three of those guys. And I don't think that's a coincidence, actually. Branson. Okay, he's a businessman, but he's actually a showman. He, he understood that, that there's, there's actually scope for... Because actually in technology, the marketing problem is often every bit as acute. As, we, we forget this, okay? There are ads from 1918, 1916, basically saying, use electricity. It would be great to install electricity in your home. Now, that seems absurd to us now. If we moved into a house, even one in remote countryside, which didn't have a mains electricity supply, day one, without any marketing requirement, we'd be on the phone to the electricity board. That wasn't always the case because people had worked out lives where you could get by without it. You had gas lighting. You boiled your kettle on a stove. You grilled your toast underneath the, in some oven thing. Electricity was once considered a discretionary purchase. And everything new is almost by definition a discretionary purchase, because by definition, you've survived so far without it. And so an example I'd give of this is solar panels. And I was talking about this the other day. When I was a kid, solar panels just about made sense if you lived in Arizona or the Sahara Desert, but they were considered useless, you know, in Britain. For example, bit by bit, the technology has improved. The cost of manufacturing has fallen. The thinness and weight of the of the panels themselves has significantly improved. 
And yet they failed on one major thing, I would argue, which is the assumption is that to enjoy solar power in your home, you have to shell out £30,000 irreversibly to attach an immovable series of objects to the roof of your house at a cost of about £30,000 on a house, by the way, which 50% of people are probably planning to sell within the next five or six years. I think the, the, the median time spent in a British home is about seven years. And, and by the way, you can't buy it from John Lewis. You have to contact a load of weirdos you've never heard of who come out and then, you know, basically unless you've got a degree in electrical engineering, you don't know what the hell they're talking about. And then furthermore, you're not entirely sure that when you've got all this stuff plumbed in that your local electricity board will actually pay you a credit for the energy you feed into the grid. Now, regardless of the technology, that is a decision which other than multi-millionaires very few human beings are going to take because it's too it's too upfront weighted. I've got these Philips Hue lights in this room. In fact, if I say, Alexa, change the study lights to red, you will suddenly see that I, I oh, it didn't work that time. It usually does. She, she's next door in fairness. Now, I didn't install those all at once. If an electrician had come to me and said, okay, we think you need internet connected light bulbs and 900 quid and we can do most of your house. I would have said, piss off, mate. You're completely barking. Why on earth do I want to change the whole of my house blue? What's actually happened is I bought them in a modular fashion, one at a time. And I started with two, and then my daughter moved to a bedroom upstairs where there wasn't a light switch. So I worked out it was cheaper to buy these bulbs than to get an electrician in to install a light switch and bury it into the wall and get the plastering done and get the repainting done. Okay, so with all that, what I suddenly realized is that the whole solar panels thing, it's not a problem with the guy bloody cooking the food. It's a problem with the guy sweeping the floor. And marketing is as much an area of R&D as R&D is. And yet what we're doing is instead of saying digital marketing is a fantastic opportunity for experimentation and discovery, we're instead saying, let us see if we can eke another 3% efficiency gain out of our media budget. And to use the language of foraging, the ratio of exploit to explore is completely wacko. Digital marketing should be our exploration space. And instead, it's become our exploitation space. It is. I want to just go back where we started with Red Bull, and we were talking essentially about the placebo effect there. With Red Bull, or even with the example of champagne, I argue it's fairly harmless. It's fun. Even when we refer to medical care, healthcare, talked about the price of drugs, analgesics, and Dan Ariely talks about this in Predictably Irrational, that you know it's actually arguably problematic for healthcare systems if more expensive drugs are considered better versus their cheaper equivalents, which have the same effect. I mean, that is actually putting, certainly on the US system, which uh, they don't have the same strain effect. on the system. Uh, yeah. So, so in, I specifically mentioned analgesics because the point of an analgesic is to reduce pain. And if you can reduce pain more effectively through a combination of the placebo effect, essentially, and the pharmacological effect, then actually I don't think that's problematic. And it also is, raises an issue, which is medicine considers the scientific component of medicine to be overall effect minus placebo effect equals pharmacological effect. Now, I would argue that's completely wrong, that actually you should be trying to multiply the combined efficacy of psychological components to the treatment to chemical components to the treatment, which apparently in some parts of Japanese medicine, they effectively look at the two as being... so. For example, quitting smoking, okay, it's prob the, the, the right answer is probably going to be a mixture of substitutes like e-cigarettes and programs, stories, 
whatever it may be. I mean, one, th- one thing about the e-cigarette, by the way, is it provides you with a story to explain to yourself why you've quit, which doesn't require you to admit that you are stupid. That's one of the reasons people quit when they have kids, is they have a story they can tell. It's not to themselves as well as to other people. Now, I know that sounds completely weird, the idea that we may have to tell stories to ourselves, but we actually are constructing a narrative for our own lives with our every action to some extent. And if I say, look, you know, I used to smoke, but then I had kids, so I stopped. It doesn't require me to say I used to smoke, but then I realized I was an idiot, so I stopped smoking. I know a lot of people who say, well, of course, we used to smoke when we were young because we didn't know it was bad for you. This is older people. Actually, it's bullshit. I mean, the idea that smoking was bad for you was fairly widely believed, actually. Obviously, Richard Dole created the link between lung cancer and smoking. But generally, smoking was not considered to be a healthy habit. I mean, in in the Sherlock Holmes short stories, okay, which are late 19th century, Watson is always berating Holmes for his smoking. So actually, what that is, it's a convenient story to say, I wasn't an idiot, new information became available or new circumstances pertained, and so I changed my behavior. Now, in the same way, an e-cigarette says, well, you know, I used to smoke, but then they invented this electronic form that's safer. So I started doing that. You know, it's not only a chemical intervention, it's also a psychological one. And I would argue that a large part of medicine should be looking at the question holistically and saying, undoubtedly, the placebo effect in certain areas of medicine, I'm not talking about placebo oncology here, although, I mean, there probably are people who believe in it, but I, I wouldn't, that would not be my first area of intervention. Well, there are experiments in placebo oncology, I believe. There should be. And by the way, and there's always the danger, which is the false dichotomy between what you might call alternative medicine and medicine medicine, is in some respects a dangerous false dichotomy. Because I'm not proposing the Steve Jobs approach where he tried to treat his, his cancer with, you know, juices. What I'm proposing is that a combination of psychology and pharmacology might be more potent, certainly than psychology alone, but it might also be more potent than um, pharmacology on its own. And so that false dichotomy, which is basically you have antibiotics and skulls made out of crystal, is undoubtedly, I think, an unhelpful dichotomy for medicine to work on. I mean, you know, there are there are really interesting questions, by the way, also about the mathematics of medical work, because what we're tending to look at is average treatment levels, average dosages. And Nassim Taleb makes the point, I think, very well that in many cases, what you should be doing is actually prescribing variable doses. But everybody's testing for the optimal average, and nobody's testing variance as one of the factors that might make a difference. And yeah. so we're probably, it's a very interesting thing, apparently, with uh, intubation that if you're on a ventilator, it's actually much better if the ventilator varies its speed and power rather than remaining at a constant level. But that's one of those things which is far harder to explore than chasing an average because an average is beautiful because you can look at aggregate findings. Testing variance is more is more difficult. And Nassim's argument, which I think is very interesting, Nassim's argument about sleep is his belief is that, yes, it is probably better to have more sleep than less on average within reason. But it might be better for you to actually have quite a lot of sleep and then pull the occasional all-nighter than it might be to have absolutely eight hours of sleep uninterruptedly. Certainly, I think we can confidently say in the natural environment, environment, sleep would have varied a great deal. It would have varied seasonally because we didn't have artificial light. So, I mean, it looks as if French peasants 
in the Middle Ages, when there wasn't much you could do in terms of planting and harvesting and whether when it was the winter, they basically just huddled up indoors and seemed to have slept for fairly extensive periods of time. And so seasonally sleep would have varied historically in the in the evolutionary environment. And also just natural circumstances. Sometimes you would have been woken up by a pack of ravening dogs. And sometimes you would have said, well, nothing much is happening here. Let's let's have an extra two minutes, two hours of doze. I mean, imagine eating patterns are quite Hmm. similar in the evolutionary context, which is that three meals a day is a relatively modern convention. As as a hunter-gatherer, it's more in fits and starts, as one's sleeping patterns might also be for the reasons you explained. One of his most interesting things is that the the reason for the high levels of health in Mediterraneans is he said that Greeks, now aged 80, would have grown up effectively following the dietary precepts of the Greek Orthodox Church. And Nassim actually has an app and uh, it's sort of Greek Orthodox Church food app. And you're vegan about a third of the time, by the way. You can only eat fish a chunk of the time. You you can't drink alcohol fairly regularly throughout the year. You, you There are days when you can't drink alcohol. And then, of course, there are feast days where anything goes. Now, of course, what the Greek Orthodox Church was proposing in adherence to its dietary rules was much, much closer, certainly, to the natural food He also argues, by the way, that it may be beneficial for the wider environment because it gives nature a chance to recover. But, I mean, it is interesting, which is that a lot of what we're talking about here is really physics envy. That in physics, you can generate from the, you can generalize from the particular to the general and from the general to the particular. But as Nassim and I think it must have been um, Stephen Wolfram said, in physics, you, you can do it in both directions. In social science, you can only go from the particular to the general. But there's you something can't... also about, about physics as well in terms of thinking about ideas and creativity, which is that in physics, it's true to say that the opposite of a good idea is definitively a bad idea. It's far more binary, right, when we're thinking in physics terms. But in when we're talking about psychology, this is something you talk about in the book as well, yes. the opposite of a good idea is often a good idea. It was a physicist, Niels Bohr, who said that, which is fascinating because he seems to have run a very creative ship. And he said the opposite of a good idea is another good idea, which I think refers to the area of speculation before a law or theory is formulated. You should always consider that the opposite of what makes sense may actually also be an interesting field of inquiry. It's something I talk about quite a lot in market testing, which is make it really cheap is a great idea, but make it really expensive might be a great idea. Drop the price may increase sales. The fact that dropping the price increases sales doesn't mean that raising the price will necessarily reduce them. The idea that there's this price demand curve, which only slopes one way, is not a safe assumption. And yet economics treats it as axiomatic. And Niels Bohr also had the wonderful phrase, which is you are not thinking you are merely being logical. And this comes down to a very interesting thing, which is that there is an attempt, I think, in business, and it's an attempt really to duck blame and to gain further bureaucratic powers for the overpaid managerial technocratic class. It's getting a bit, I'm getting into anarchism uh, in my late middle age. So I'm reading quite a lot of David Graeber and quite a bit of James C. Scott, Seeing Like a State. But the technocratic class can seize power to the extent they can claim that things are generalizable. And so the technocratic class has a tendency massively to overgeneralize simply because it is in its interests, both economic and in terms of power and influence, to make that claim and to hold those beliefs. You know, I'm, I'm, one of the great reasons I'm in advertising, it's one of the few ways in which you can be reasonably well paid still what, without necessarily adhering to that ideology. The interesting thing there is that it, what they do as a result is they create this false science 
And the, the reason it's a false science is it attempts to be creativity, imagination, and subjectivity free. Now, the problem is that not even science attains that. First of all, because Aristotle says there are only certain areas where, where rules are universal and unchanging over time. And it is safe to use science in those areas, but you should avoid it everywhere else. That was Roger L. Martin who put me onto this. It's in Aristotle's rhetoric, which nobody ever reads. It's also, uh, rhetoric is also a kind of early behavioral science text in the sense that it talks about ethos, logos, and pathos as three things that are necessary to change behavior. But science, and uh, Roger Martin's a great devotee of this guy, Charles Saunders Peirce, a logician of the 19th century, an American genius, who made the point that there is something you need to do scientifically, which he calls abductive inference or abduction. Terrible word to choose, because it sounds like you've kidnapped a child. But abduction is where you take an exceptional finding or an unusual event, or you imagine an unusual event, and you then have to ask, what would have to be true in order for this to pertain? Now, what Darwin did was pure abduction. These finches have funny-shaped beaks. Other than divine design, what would have to be true for the finches to acquire divergent types of beak suited to the peculiar island environment on which they find themselves? So it requires an act of the imagination, an act of hypothesis, or what I think someone else called popicles a hunch, which is two things. It's an imaginative act, and it's also arguably a tacit skill. It's not something you can tell someone how to do. And I would argue that the purpose of education should be to make us better at abduction. But in fact, the purpose of education has been hijacked by a kind of technocratic uh, civil service class. And it's all about how, how we can be better at deduction and induction which are the skills that can be more easily taught, whereas abduction, I, I would argue that abductive ability is actually a byproduct of education, that a broad, I would even include a classical education, but a broad, widespread, curious education, the benefit of it is not that it particularly qualifies you for anything. So this is why credentialism is so dangerous. The dilettante academic is not particularly qualified for anything. And so if academia becomes all about essentially acquiring credentials, it will all be about teaching a non tacit explicit skills. But if the most valuable product of education is actually a tacit skill, which is the ability cops do it, by the way, I mean, this is why true life crime, have you been watching that West Cork thing? I okay. Haven't. Have you been? It's on Netflix. Okay. But anything, either fictional crime or true life crime, the act of detection is essentially abductive. There is a corpse, you know, a bloodied body found here. What might have been the prevailing conditions beforehand, which would have led to this unusual outcome? There are procedures, or rather, there are checklists. I wouldn't say there's a process. Actually, I think that's over-egging it. Cops know that you do have. The cops don't say don't have a process. They don't say, well, we'll do the DNA analysis. And then we'll do some house-to-house -house inquiries. They start off by doing everything at once, don't they, effectively? We are, you know, we ask what people have seen. We ask, you know, was there a dog that barked in the night? We look for information in all kinds of places that might be pertinent to our act of abductive inference. We don't have a process. What we will subsequently do is we will invest more heavily in certain lines of inquiry and less heavily in others, according to what we've learned. And by the way, as with crime, I would argue that um, abduction always falls risk to the process of effectively privileging the hypothesis or taking a wrong turn. By the way, I don't know whether this guy in West Cork did it or not. Um, is it plausible that he did it? Yes. Is it probable? Don't know. Uh, is it proved beyond reasonable doubt? No. Are the French justified in finding him guilty in absentia? No.
Right? Okay. Those are my answers to those questions. Plausible? Yes. Probable? Don't know. Uh, proved beyond reasonable doubt? Not. No. And one of the reasons I don't think it's proved beyond reasonable doubt is I don't think they explored other areas of inquiry sufficiently. So bear in mind, this crime happened in a very, very obscure building in Ireland at a time before GPS. So one of the hypotheses was that nobody who wasn't local would have even known the house existed or would have known how to find it, which is not entirely true because she might have brought someone there with her. That's the first one. And the second one is that uh, they didn't add, although he didn't have much of an alibi, they didn't adequately explore the fact that because it happened at one o'clock in the morning, potentially, sometime between midnight and 10 a.m., at least. Nobody much would have had much of an alibi anyway, because they're either at home with someone who probably would have lied for them, or they, if they lived alone, they simply said, I was asleep. It's not as if at two o'clock in the morning in a sleepy Irish town, someone else's alibi has that much weight. So I think they slightly privileged the hypothesis, to be absolutely honest, which is not to say the guy isn't guilty. The point I'm making is this business of what Conan Doyle calls reasoning backwards. And medicine, of course, does it with diagnostics. Now, the interesting thing is, I would argue that the real value of my education was to make me better at this. But the function of, of education has been all about credentialism, which is proving you can do things which are what you might call objective, measurable, quantifiable skills, rather than the real benefit of, of education, which is if you know a lot of shit about a lot of shit, your ability to have hunches will be enhanced. That's why I love working in advertising, actually. It was basically 30 years practice in having better hunches. And behavioral science frees you to hypothesize. Okay, so the assumption would have been in 2019, everybody is, is not using video conferencing because they've tried it and it didn't work. Behavioral science allows you to hypothesize. Maybe nobody's using video conferencing because they're effectively risk averse. And that why would I try a new means of work if anything get, got wrong, my head's on the block? So it allows you to hypothesize maybe nobody's installing solar power on the roof because you can't do it in a modular fashion. So talking okay. of which, let's find some other examples of brand alchemy, which I'd love, I'd love to do, because you refer to a number of brands in your book whose success is derived at least in part from alchemy. We mentioned Steve Jobs. Apple is a good example where... I'll give you a Coca-Cola one. Go on then. Which is, I think, the magic of Coke which Warren Buffett spots quite a lot of what the magic of Coke is. The distribution is spectacular, but the distribution of Coke has a psychological effect, which is I can ask for a Diet Coke anywhere on the planet from a Tanzanian beach shack to a Michelin-starred Paris restaurant with the reasonable expectation that if they don't have it, it's their fault, not mine. I can't ask for Dr. Pepper in either of those two circumstances without the mild risk of social embarrassment or being treated like an idiot. Or my colleagues on the other table passing comment going, ooh, why are you drinking? Cider suffers from this, by the way, which is if you notice, if you order a beer or you order a glass of wine, nobody ever comments. If you order a cider, you've got a fucking... Ex oh, sorry, is this a family show? No, you're okay. Okay, but if you order cider, for some reason, you've got to come up with like an explanation because someone's going, ooh, you're drinking cider. Why are you drinking cider? And I've got to feel, well, it's a hot day, so actually, you know, in hot weather, a lot of people prefer cider to beer, right? It's norming and the minimization of social comment or the risk of minor or social opprobrium. We know that people are much more likely to order Guinness if there's someone already drinking Guinness visibly in the pub. I suggested to Guinness that there was a job where you could just recruit people to uh, turn up at the pub really early and just stand there with a 
massive pint of Guinness really close to the door. It would probably pay. But once you understand these things, what's wonderful is it allows you it allows you to become better at can say better at abduction. It allows you to become better at abductive inference. And behavioral science opens up completely new fields for exp- exploration and, and both mental and practical experimentation. Now, Danny Kahneman, who you mentioned earlier, talking of uh, behavioral science and human biases, he believes that our human biases are really too deeply embedded for humans to change their decision making. Or at least we can use behavioral science perhaps to understand the behavior of others, if not see it in our own biases. And he actually talks about this a little in his new book, which I think is just published today, in fact, which is Noise, which he writes with Cass Sunstein and Olivier Siboni. But the question I wanted to ask to you a little playfully is that as a behavioral scientist yourself, do you pull your yourself back from the brink of making irrational decisions or are you as susceptible to placebo herding endowment and any other biases as much as the next person and there part one of my interview with rory hits the pause button you'll have to subscribe to make sure you hear the answer to this question and a whole lot more behavioral science insight anecdote and humor next time i really hope you enjoyed this interview if you did Do me a favour and press the subscribe button on Apple or follow Paths Less Trodden in Spotify. The more of you who do that, the more great stories I can share with you. You can also subscribe to my newsletter where you can find these recordings, the written transcripts and other pieces. That's at danielsjross.substack.com. Till next time.